Okay, friends, good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you are new with us, we are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians that we started back in September, which will go all the way uh, till May. Um, just so that you know, we are a church that preaches through books of the Bible. Uh, so we like to go verse by verse. I like to see what God has to say. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Kenson. I serve as the pastor of our church in Bridgeport. So really grateful to be with you all here today. And your pastor, Pastor Rafe, is over at South Loop, blessing our folks uh, with the sermon that he has prepared. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Uh, but let me go ahead and just read a couple of our verses and we'll jump in, okay? So let me just read from verses 12 to 14 here. So starting at verse 12, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Both the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book, The Rest of God, Mark Buchanan recounts the story of his grandma, Alice. Now, grandma Alice had a huge boulder sitting right in the middle of her backyard garden, and it was too big to move. So grandma Alice decided, well, let's polish the rock and at least make it look pretty. So she began to sand the rock and polish it, and she begins to notice that there's gold flakes on her fingertips. And she got so excited. There is gold on this rock. Her heart starts to race, and she scrubs even faster and faster and faster. She puts her whole body into it. Gold fever has struck her. Now, Grandma Ellis could feel it. I'm going to be so rich. Now, after a while, she gets tired. She has to wipe the sweat off her face. She's exhausted. And then she realized, when she looked at her ring finger, that on the top of her ring finger, the ring looked normal, but on the underside of her gold wedding ring, it was wire thin. She realized that all the gold dust that she was seeing was from the sandpaper sanding down, filing down her gold ring. She was heartbroken, not just because she wasn't gonna be rich, but in the pursuit of this false treasure, she destroyed her most precious treasure, this family heirloom. You know, Grandma Alice's mistake is the same mistake we have repeated over and over and over again, and that's idolatry. Now, when we think of idolatry, you know, what comes to mind are usually pictures like this. So let me just show it to you here. That you have these pictures of these large and ornate and man-made statues where people parade and bow down to. But what we're going to see today is that idols come in many shapes and forms. And every single person in this room, including myself, we have an idol that we wrestle with. Now, what is idolatry? You know, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says it well in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I highly recommend reading. He says this about idolatry. He says, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. 
Idolatry is anything that takes the place of God in our hearts. And Paul says in our verses today that the mess that we have seen so far in the Corinthian church is because they are practicing idolatry. Verses 6 and 7. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Then in verse 14, therefore, my beloved church in Corinth, flee from idolatry. The problems in the church was because they were idolizing their reputation, idolizing their standing within the Christian community, idolizing their pleasures, idolizing their freedoms and their rights. Paul, in our verses, confronts their sin at the source. It's idol worship. They have replaced God in their hearts. And and a key word to actually understanding what idolatry is, is right there in verse 6. Paul says, desire, evil desire. Now, in the Greek, that word desire is better translated as super desire. This is a desire that has become so large that it controls you. It is something or someone that has such a grip on your soul that without it, you're not sure if you want to continue living. And this is a desire that you just can't turn off. Just like how you can't turn off breathing or eating, you will always gravitate to worship something because we are made for it. Let me just back up to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 here. In the beginning, God made us for himself. And he created the world and everything in it as a gift to be enjoyed as we worship God. But Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God. And since that day, our desires have been corrupted. It's not as though Adam and Eve sinned and then all of a sudden we stopped becoming worshipers. No, we we are still worshipers. We still long to, to worship. We still have that super desire. But now instead of worshiping the creator, we now worship the created things. So we give our time, our energy, our money, our love, our body, our devotion, our hopes, our dreams, and our fears to this thing or person. They have become a counterfeit God. So the question today is not if we are worshiping something, we all are. The question is, what are we choosing to worship today? So with that, here are the points that are going to move us along in our verses today. And let me just show it to you. Here are the three points. First is this, ignoring our idols. Second, recognizing our idols. And then finally, overcoming our idols. So ignoring our idols, recognizing our idols, and overcoming our idols. So let's look at the first point. Ignoring our idols, verses 1 to 7 here. Let me read our verses. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And this is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
Okay, so Paul here now is going into the Old Testament and he wants to show the people in the church in Corinth, you know, what happened to the people of God in the Exodus as a caution to the church. Do not repeat the same mistakes of idol worship. Now, we read in the book of Exodus that Israel was in slavery for 400 years under the Egyptians, and it was a harsh and brutal existence for them. So the people of God cried out for help, and God sends a deliverer through Moses to to set them free. So they go through the Red Sea. God leads them to the other side, you know, into the wilderness. And what happens is that God meets with them day and night. That during the day, God is with his people through a cloud. And by night, he is with his people through a pillar of fire. And God provides food, you know, through manna and that sweet wafers coming from heaven. And through a rock, God provides water, not just for a few people, but for millions and millions of people. So we have to see here that during the time of Exodus, God is very kind to his people. He redeems them. He delivers them. He provides provides for them. That is verses 1 and 4. But then we have verse 5 here. But the Israelites are ungrateful and unfaithful to God. First example is that they don't believe that God is strong enough to conquer the enemies in Canaan and for God to lead them into the promised land. So God punishes them to spend 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation dies, except for Joshua and Caleb, but for everyone else in that disbelieving generation to die. Another notable example of their disobedience is in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, what moment's being referenced here? You know, Paul is referencing when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites complained that Moses has been gone too long. So they go to Aaron, the second in charge, the priest in charge. And they say, hey, you know what, Aaron? Make us a representation of God, a physical representation of God. We want to worship. So Aaron said, all right, fine. Give me all your jewelry. Give me all your gold. He melts it and makes it into a golden calf, which is a representation of an Egyptian god, the god of prosperity. So Moses comes down, and he sees the people of God, the Israelites. They are eating and drinking and partying and being sensual around this golden calf. And Moses can't believe his eyes. On that day, 3,000 people died for their faithlessness. Paul cautions to the church, do not make the same mistake of idolatry as the people in the wilderness. God held them accountable to their sins, and he will hold you accountable to yours. Now, in verse 1, Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware Brothers, do not be ignorant of the same idols that inflict us. Don't minimize it. Don't be blind to it. Can I just say, this is what makes idolatry so tricky for us. It's easy to spot the idols in the lives of others, but we're so blind to it, to our own lives, that we have those moments where we kind of just say in our heads or maybe we just tell our spouse, oh my goodness, he's so into himself. Oh my goodness, he's so stingy. Oh my goodness, he's such a complainer. But when someone confronts us about our sin, we act all shocked and hurt like, oh my goodness, I'm actually a sinner? No way, right? We're so blind to our, our stuff. 
It's also easy for us to read verses like this and to fall into this false sense of belief that we've become more advanced, that we'll never make the same mistakes. The Israelites, they're dumb. I would never worship a golden calf. That's stupid. Oh, the, the, church, the, the church in Corinth, how could they do all those things? You know, how, how can they bring other believers and bring lawsuits and how can they like eat uh, meat to idols? I, I would never do that. I would never idolize that. Paul says, no, 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 no. Verse 1, no, the very same heart condition that we see with the people in Egypt is the very one that inflicts your heart because we've all been impacted by sin. Do not be ignorant of this. So, for example, we might not have a golden calf. We might not have shrines and temples and animal sacrifices in our Western world around every corner, but that doesn't mean that we're not surrounded by idolatry. Oh, we are. Just look at our tallest buildings. Look at our biggest billboards, and you will see the idols that grip our culture. What do we see on billboards? Plastic surgery, hair loss, entertainment, consumerism, adult entertainment, Dunkin' Donuts. Ouch, okay, ouch, that, that personally hurt. Look at our buildings. What are our biggest buildings? Financial institutions, insurance buildings, Amazon warehouses and trucks on every single block and street. Idol worship is everywhere. You know, we're currently in a discussion as a city to try to keep the Chicago Bears from moving to Arlington Heights, and our city is still continuing to propose to invest $2 billion to do that. Do you know how crazy that looks to the rest of the world that is starving and living on less than $1 a day? That we might look at the Eastern world and say, oh, look at all the temples and shrines. They, you guys idol worship everywhere. Can I tell you something? When the East comes to the West, they see it as well too. They see all of it. They know that we idol worship in our buildings and in our shrines. Or here's another example. Two weeks ago, we had the Grammys, and Beyonce broke the record for the most Grammys ever with 32. What do we call her? We call her Queen B. okay? She's also hosting a concert in Chicago, and I'm reading that people are literally going bankrupt to get tickets. That, my friends, is worship. Two weeks ago as well, LeBron James became the greatest scorer in basketball. We call him... King James. Of course, Chicago basketball, Chicago basketball, we have, and we will always have, Michael Jordan. And we call him his Aaroness. Are you seeing something here? We are built to worship. We want to worship. Idolatry is all around us. Don't be blind to it. You know, another thing that makes idolatry difficult to spot in our lives is that it always doesn't, it doesn't always start off as something bad it can actually start as something good, but then we make it the ultimate. So, for example, we love our spouse. We love our job. We love our kids. We love our health. We love our beauty. We love our pets. We love our furniture. We love our wardrobe. And this is all good and perfectly fine. It's fine to get married. It's fine to buy a house. It's fine to have a dog, to make a family, to drive a car, to have an education, to watch television, to listen to music, to eat dinner. These are all good good things from God, but it becomes bad when we elevate them to the place of God, that instead of worshiping the creator, we worship created things. So for example, kids are good, but when they become my everything, it's an idol. Nothing, with, nothing wrong with money in itself. Money can be used to do a lot of good, but if we need money 
to feel secure, it's an idol. Friendships are great, but if we need friends so that I can feel loved, it's an idol. You know, Chicago, a big sports town. Sports is fun. It's great for exercise. It's great to learn teamwork and leadership. But if sports consume your, consumes your heart, you know, if your sports team loses or your kid's soccer team loses and your whole week is shot, uh, might that sport have too much of control in your life, right? Don't be ignorant of the good things from God and how we can use it to replace God in our hearts. And we actually see this in chapter 8 and kind of the conversation that we've been having. Because back in chapter 8, the issue that Paul's been dealing with is that he tells the strong that, hey, you know, I know that you want to eat meat offered to a pagan God. And the strong in faith are, are, are defending it. They're saying, why can't I eat it? I know that God, that this meat belongs to God, that God is sovereign over everything, that God gives this meat to us. This meat is a gift from God. But what the strong in faith do is that they use this theology to justify their selfishness. That instead of glorifying God by eating different foods to show love to a weaker brother, they use this food, which they say is a gift from God, as a way to divide the church. We need to see that good gifts make lousy gods. They will let you down and will lead you down a path of greater sin and disobedience. And this leads us to our second point, recognizing our idols. Verses 8 and 12. So now that we know that we have a propensity towards idol worship, we need to ask, how can we know the specific idols that inflict us? Look at verse 8 and 12 here. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul shows us here that idolatry reveals itself through sinful behavior. Now, once again, Paul uses the examples of the Israelites in the wilderness and how they have now given themselves to sexual immorality, to testing God and grumbling against God. So let's unpack each of these here, okay? Once again, in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is in reference to Numbers chapter 25. And let me just show you this, quick, this verse here real quick, verses 1 and 2, Numbers 25. It says this, When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So the people are in the wilderness, and sexual immorality is a big problem, and God kills 23,000 people that day. Now notice in this verse the deep connection between sex and spirituality, that the Israelites indulge in sexual immorality and then give worship and sacrifice to pagan gods. And we've talked about this in our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. People today are obsessed with sex in our culture for the very same reason, that we are desperate for intimacy, for love, for union, for connection and satisfaction that only God can give, but instead we go to sex. So friends, when we look at pornography or sleep around or lust, 
These are all symptoms of a much deeper hunger and longing for satisfaction. That is an idol. The second thing Paul says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is in reference to Numbers 21 where the people of God whine about the food and water that God has so faithfully provided. So God brings about serpents to bite and poison the people and they begin to die. And in order for them to be saved, the Israelites need to look to a bronze serpent. Now what we see here is that the people of God tested God and did not trust God, that they saw God as a vending machine. God, I expect you to answer to me the way that I want. I expect you to prove yourself to me. Then I will follow you. Then I will do this and that for you. That is a transactional relationship with God. And many of us do this in different forms. God, I went to church. Why aren't you answering my prayers? God, I tithe. Where are my blessings? God, I am faithful to you. Where is my spouse? This is testing God. And at the heart of this sin is the idol of control. We test God because we believe we know better in how our lives should go. So when life goes too fast, it goes too slow, or God decides to take like the long and winding route, we grow impatient with God. We get critical of God. We cast doubt on God and whether or not if he can lead us. That is the idol of control. Then finally, Paul says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Most likely, this is in reference to number 16, in which the people of God grumbled against Moses and Aaron because they didn't want to accept their punishment. So the people of God have heard, because of your unfaithfulness, you will stay in the wilderness for 40 years and completely die out. So it's very understandable that the Israelites didn't want to hear that. So they grumble against their leaders, and God sends a plague and kills 14,700 people. That what we see here is that they grumbled against God instead of being grateful to God. This, I believe, is the idol of entitlement. I deserve better. Can I just say that as Christians, we should never say that. We should never be known for our grumbling, but for our gratefulness, because we know that we don't deserve anything, yet in Christ we have everything. That as we grow in Christ's likeness, we will grow in humility, we will grow in our understanding of the cross. So those words, I deserve more, should be dying, and instead we should be saying, my goodness, what I have is more than I can ever deserve in this life. Now, are you seeing here that within these three examples, Paul is showing us that the root of this sinful behavior comes from idolatry. Idolatry corrupts our hearts and in which in turn corrupts our behavior. Idolatry turns us into Grandma Alice, always striving, sanding away those things that are most important to you. But when we peel back the layers of our sinful behavior, you will always see on that altar an idol. So, for example, let me just give some more examples here. When you idolize money, it might lead you to steal. Now, you might not naturally be a dishonest person, but because you love money, you begin to cut corners. You fudge some numbers. You pocket a little bit of cash you shouldn't be pocketing. Money has now become your happiness and security, and you act out accordingly. When we idolize our family, when we make being a parent our identity and self-worth, guess who pays the price? 
It's always our kids, always our kids. We're comparing our kids to others and we put so much pressure on them to do well and to perform because when they do well, I as a parent, I do well. Any of you who come from immigrant households, you know exactly how that feels and it is a punishing existence to be in. Here's another example. When you idolize your accomplishments and the respect that comes from it, you will work yourself to the ground to prove yourself. You will sacrifice your marriage and kids for your careers, right? We might not have human sacrifices on on an altar right now, but we are all still making human sacrifices for our idols. In this case here, with our marriage and kids. Do you see? Our sinful behaviors will always expose our idols. St. Augustine said that our sinful actions and emotions are like a smoke from a fire. And the worst thing that you can ever do is that when you see a smoke, when you see smoke filling up a room and just say to yourself, wow, <coughs> this room is getting really smoky in here. You know, let's just open up a couple of doors and windows and, and that'll fix everything, right? No, absolutely not. You need to figure out where the fire is coming from. When you see the smoke of bad behavior and emotions, don't just wave away the smoke. Figure out where that is coming from. Idolatry is not just another sin amongst the dozens and dozens and hundreds of other sins. Idolatry is the root cause of all sin. It is the root of all our troubles. And notice in our examples the severe punishments the Israelites experienced because of their idol worship. Notice the punishments that we see here. A whole generation dies without going into the promised land. The people of God are bitten with poisonous snakes and dies. They practice sexual immorality. 23,000 people die. They grumble against the leaders that God has put in place and almost 15,000 people die. You see it here over and over again. Idol worship leads to death. There's like almost an equal sign there that Paul's trying to give. Idol worship, idolatry leads to death. This is Paul's caution for us. If we continue in our pattern of idol worship and sin, it can bring about physical sickness and death, and it will for sure bring about spiritual darkness to our lives. Increase in anxiety, increase in fears, increase in sadness. There is a real and present danger to idolatry. And this leads us to our final point, overcoming our idols. Verses 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you that has not come to man. God is faithful. If any of you underline your Bibles, underline those three words. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul says, God is faithful. The three most important words in our entire passage. If we want to overcome our idols, it is not rooted in our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. When we fail, God is faithful. When we sin, God is faithful. When we are weak, God is faithful. Our hope is in God's faithfulness. The way to overcoming idolatry is to lean into the presence and faithfulness of God. Because it's when we believe that God is present and God is real and God is filled with unconditional and unrelenting love towards us and he is ready to help us, we can overcome our idols. You know, Paul Tripp, a pastor and teacher, 
said this. Let me show it to you, and I love it. He says this. If you worshiped your way into sin, you'll have to worship your way out. Let me just say that one more time. If you worshiped your way into sin, the only solution is that you have to worship your way out. You know, this verse also says that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What this means is that what that idol that grips your heart, you can never ever say that I'm helpless, I'm defeated. That sin that you've been wrestling with for as long as you can remember, you can't say I have no choice. It's over for me. It is what it's gonna be. There's no other, there's no hope for me. No, this verse, the promise of God is that he will always provide a way out. There is no sin in your life that you can't overcome so that you can honor God. So whenever you feel like this temptation is too strong for you, that is a lie from the enemy. When you think that you can't overcome, that is a lie from the enemy. When you think that you can never change, that is a lie from the enemy. There is no temptation you will face today and this week and this month and this year that you cannot overcome because you never ever face a temptation alone. God is faithful. The God of the universe is with you. He will strengthen you. He will help you as you keep your eyes on him and as you trust him. Amen? Amen. Okay, there could have been a couple of amens during that whole entire thing, okay? So how do we practically overcome our idols, okay? So if, if you guys know how I preach, I always want to make it practical. Let's get some application. So how can we practically overcome our idols? Let me give you four steps that you can take to confront your idols. And frankly, anytime you're dealing with sin, here are the four steps, let me show it to you. Recognition, repent, replace, rejoice. How do we confront our idols? Recognition, repent, replace, rejoice, okay? So let me just go through each one real quick. So first, as we've talked about, recognize the idol that sits on the throne of your heart, right? You gotta figure out now where the smoke is, Figure out where the fire is. And here's actually a list of reflection questions from Mark Driscoll that I think can help us find sin at the source to help diagnose the idols in our lives. So let me just show you the questions here, okay? So here are just some questions to help you to reflect. What are you most afraid of? Sometimes our idols are the things you're scared of not having. I'm scared to be alone. I'm scared of this dead-end job. I'm scared that I will be exposed as a fraud. Another question, where do you run for comfort? When you have a hard day, what gives you relief? Alcohol, drugs, sex, despair? Another question, what do you complain most about? Okay, now, now I'm meddling in your life, right? What do you complain most about? What is frustrating your life, your family, your spouse, your boss? Could it be possible that those things that you complain about have an unhealthy control of your heart. Another question, how do you explain yourself to others? You know, when you meet someone, how do you introduce yourself? You know, someone brand new, hey, you know, nice to meet you, I'm Kenson, I live in this neighborhood, I live on this block, hey, you know, I work here, here's my title, hey, I'm married, I have this many kids, you know, I go to this school. Now, once again, these are not bad things, but might it be a hint of where you might be placing your identity? Another question, where is your money going? Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where are you quick to be generous? 
Is it to yourself or to others? What are your credit card statements saying about your heart? Another question, where is your time going? Open up your Google Calendar and look at what's monopolizing your time. Are you working nonstop and ignoring Sabbath rest? Are you, throwing, are you scrolling through social media all day into the night, into 2 a.m., 3 a.m., whatever? It's been said, if it's, if it's important to you, you will make time. What's your calendar saying about what's important? Another question, whose approval are you seeking? Are you waiting for your parents to say to you, I'm proud of you? Are you waiting for your boss to give you that annual review and say you're a winner? Are you waiting for your professor to write that big A plus you know, on your paper to say that, yeah, hey, you finally made it? And here's one last question. And answer this question. If I just had blank, okay, now don't answer it out loud. Answer it in your head. But you know what? If I had just blank, then I would feel complete. If I just had this the anxiety would go away. If I just had this, the frustration would be gone. If I just had this, the anger would go. Don't just focus on the smoke. Find out where the fire is. If you want to overcome your idols, recognize what they are. Second is this, repent. Repent. In the Old Testament, the people of God were commanded to literally break false idols, false gods. Don't just put them to the side. Don't just turn them off. Don't just hide them. You are to break it. Now, it doesn't mean that if you idolize your family or your health or your work that, I'm, that you're gonna destroy them. I'm not telling you tomorrow morning to go into your office and just like start tearing things up, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What it means is that you have to break the bond that it has on your heart that only God should have. That you need to make the choice. That's what repentance is. A change of mind that it's no more. It needs to go away. Your heart and mind need to change. And when you pursue repentance, you don't do it in isolation, but you also do so in community. It's really interesting to notice that when you fall deeper and deeper into idolatry, the more isolated you become, well, if you want to pursue repentance, you've got to do it within community to help you in that. Verse 13, again, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Once again, when we're struggling with our sin and idols, it's tempted to think that I'm the only one struggling. No one else is going to get it. No, that is a lie from the enemy. Whatever you're struggling with or going through right now, other people are going through it. You do not have to experience this temptation alone. For any of you who've ever been vulnerable and authentic in your small group and you've shared your sin, one of the things that I've always noticed is that when someone has done that, when small group is over or during a sharing time, other people are like, man, Kenson, I wrestle with the very same thing. I'm so glad that you spoke up. You never, ever face a temptation alone. This is the work of true repentance. You say no more, and you welcome biblical community into your life. Here's the next step. We have to replace, okay? We can't just remove a counterfeit God and call it a day. We are built to worship, so we will always cling to something else. So we have to remove the counterfeit God, and we have to replace it with the true and living God. Those things that I've been finding my identity in, in my career and success, those things that I've been placing my security on, like my bank account or my education, we have to fill it with God. This is why I want to invite you to please practice the discipline of Lent, which is 40 days of fasting and prayer. Do you know what fasting is? 
Fasting is a denial of self to say, I want more of God. Fasting is a way of killing your idols, right? That you make yourself hungry, whether it's for food or for whatever else is in your life that's really important, but you make yourself hungry for it because you say to yourself that as much as I want this, I want God more. Pursue, be a part of the Lent experience. So after we recognize, repent, and replace, finally, we rejoice and worship God. We worship Jesus, who alone is our Savior. We worship Jesus because he is faithful. And when we worship Jesus, we can now be free to enjoy the good gifts from God without making them the ultimate thing. That I can have friends without worshiping their approval. I can work my job without it being my identity. I can have money without it being my security because I worship Jesus. If we worshiped our way into sin, we worship our way out of it. So Park Community Church, South Loop, we can overcome our idols because our God is faithful. So let's worship him alone, trust him alone, and look to him alone. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, first we come to you just in confession. They got that there is no sin in our lives that are ever, that's ever a small sin. But Father, they are, they are heartbreaking sins because sins ultimately is a way that says that we worship something else. That we don't worship the true and living God, but we worship ourselves, we worship this thing or person. So God, first we just want to start and just confess, God. With open hands, Father, we recognize that, God, we have wandering hearts and we're prone to stray away. But God, we thank you that you are faithful in all of that. That God, you're patient, you're long-suffering. God, you send us Jesus in our sins, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That's how much you love us. So Father, I pray for us, that God, that as we go to war with our idols and sin, that Father, we don't do so out of legalism, we don't do so out of you know, tradition, we don't do so out of just like, like you know, it's a self-righteousness, but that Father, that we would go about war with our idols because we worship you, because we love you and you have our greatest affection. So Father, would your spirit move mightily within this church? Would you help us to love and pursue you know, purity and, 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 and holiness, God, and, and to just trust your word and trust the words that you say? God, not once again to earn anything from you, but to declare that you are worthy of our lives. So Father, would you do that incredible work in our hearts? It's in Christ's name we pray.